Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss new opportunities in the alts universe. From direct investments to DSTs, opportunity zones, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome back for another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Earlier this month, AltsDB hosted Alts Expo, a live online showcase of alternative investments. What follows today is the audio version of an educational panel from that event titled Alternative Investment Trends for 2022. To view the panel in video format and to learn more about the panelists, check out the show notes for today's episode. You can find those show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast, and look for the episode titled Alternative Investment Trends for 2022. And to play any of the recordings from Alts Expo on demand, head over to altsexpo.com. Enjoy. The panel today is Alternative Investment Trends for 2022. We're coming up toward the end of the year. What are some alternative investment trends that investors should have an eye on? as we head into the new year. So I'll quickly introduce our three panelists today and I'll, I'll moderate the, uh, the panel, but I'll mostly be in the background and I wanna let our industry leading panelists shine here. So Megan Gavin is joining us from the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives. She's the Director of Strategic Partnerships there. IPA is a trade organization representing the non-traded alternative investment industry. And they do a great job of educating and advocating on behalf of that industry of portfolio diversifying investments. Reed Thomas is joining us today from JTC Americas, formerly known as NES Financial. He's the executive vice president of sales and marketing there, and they are a leading fund administration platform for alternative investment products. And finally, last but not least, is my partner at OZ Pros, Ashley Tyson. OZ Pros is a strategic advisory firm for Opportunity Zone investors, developers, and fund sponsors. So quickly, just to kind of go around the horn here, I'd like to get uh, maybe a slightly more in-depth introduction and a little bit more about everyone's organization. Uh, if you could just spend you know another 30 to 60 seconds saying hello, and we'll make sure at that time that your microphone's working all right as well. So, so Megan, if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and IPA before we get underway, please. Thank you. Sure. Happy to. Thank you so much for having us. My name is Megan Gavin, Director of Strategic Partnerships. I joined the IPA about a year ago, but I've been in the alternative investment industry for over 15 years, hitting close to 18 now. I've been working with a bunch of asset managers that have brought out really incredible alternative investments ranging from non-traded REITs, BDCs, private placements, preferred stock offerings. But now at the IPA, I work with our membership. The IPA has been instrumental in advocating for our industry. It's no shock that our industry is highly regulated. So um, we're very busy when it comes to government affairs and, and being in DC. We also uh, provide uh, great networking opportunities for our members and conferences. And we ultimately want to educate the end user, the investors on the benefits of alternative investments. Tremendous. Well, very happy to have you here today, Megan. Reed, tell us a little bit about JTC Americas and the types of funds that you have on your platform, the, the types of alternative investment products that are using your fund administration platform. Sure. Yeah. JTC Group is a global company. We operate in 23 countries. We're publicly listed on the London Stock Exchange 
market cap of over a billion dollars. We uh, about uh, have about 130 billion dollars in funds under administration at the moment, and 50 percent of our business is private client, private wealth. The other 50 percent is administrative services. In the United States, I run that business, and we grew up focusing on uh, very specialized niche funds, tax-advantaged funds, DSTs, OZs, but also traditional private equity funds. And we do that by having a, a technology platform which we can configure to be purpose-built for the investment types that were involved. So opportunity zones, we've done extremely well. You know, we have over 200 funds that we're, we're currently servicing. And we do not just the traditional fund accounting, but we also do the opportunity zone compliance tracking as well as uh, impact tracking. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Reed. And Ashley, how are you doing? And tell us a little bit more about yourself and OZ Pros. Well, Jimmy, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. Love your events and love uh, what you're doing here with alts as well as what you've done for the Opportunity Zone industry. So it's been a wild ride in the Opportunity Zone space. OZ Pros is a full-service advisory firm where our passion is the democratization of Opportunity Zones. So getting probably the most powerful legislative tax incentive that's ever been created in the hands of Main Street America and into the hands of the folks that can actually make a difference in the communities that it was designed to uh, positively impact. And we do that through kind of a, a, a variety of measures, but we've really tried to focus on productization so making it really simple for people to get their Opportunity Zone funds done, to learn about Opportunity Zones through some educational products, to see if their deal will work through strategy calls, and then ultimately getting them up and running and uh, helping them through kind of an ongoing compliance interactive experience. And so we've had over 600 strategy calls, and we've set up over 750 entities at this point, and uh, it's been a wild ride. So excited to talk about that. And I think that where Opportunity Zones, and obviously I'm a, a huge advocate for that, but inside of that, Opportunity Zones become an excellent planning tool and an excellent opportunity to incorporate some other alternative investments into folks' portfolios in order to help them save taxes in addition to what the Opportunity Zone allows them to do. So it gives us a lot of flexibility to postpone when the taxes are due and then to utilize that time in order to look at some other alternative investment classes. So it's been really neat to kind of expand into that as we've come through the rush of folks getting their Opportunity Zone funds set up. Fantastic. Thank you, Ashley. Just before we uh, continue here, just a reminder, if you have any questions for me or our panelists here today, please do use the Q&A tool in your Zoom toolbar. For those of you just joining us, that Q&A icon can typically be found in your Zoom toolbar toward the bottom of your screen. You can submit a question and we'll, we'll save some time for some Q&A toward the end of the panel today. First question I'll pose to Megan first, and then if Ashley and Reed want to chime in, please feel free. But Megan, are alts becoming more popular? Is there a shift underway from traditional assets to alternatives? The answer is absolutely. I can see it in just our membership, um, how it has evolved over the last five years. And even just in the last uh, probably 12, 24 months to see how our membership has evolved. Uh, new sponsors coming in, asset managers popping into our space, ones that we traditionally would not have seen or, or thought about. So it, it's been very refreshing to see that. But you know, I, I think there's been a great alignment of investors, 
advisors and asset managers. And not that the alignment wasn't there previously, but I think it's now a little bit more of a well-oiled machine. Investors looking for yield, um, you have financial advisors, registered investment advisors that are able to distribute these a little bit more easily. You have uh, the evolution of fintech. And then you also have asset managers that have now really kind of cracked the code on what it is and what that structure needs to look like. And there's really just this really nice alignment that you see a lot of the uh, newer players coming in have been able to bring fresh air to the space and bringing new type of product structures that benefit both the financial advisors and the investors. And that alignment, I think, is really allowing a lot of new players to come into the market. You see clients are looking for yield. They're starved for yield. I think the 10-year treasury was at like 1.4. The 30-year bond was at uh, 1.7. Moody's AAA, I think it was barely at two. So people need some sort of products that are providing income. Um, we need to especially after inflation. after taxes and after inflation. I was just going to say, negative with the inflation, I was going to say, because okay. inflation running at 6%. Yeah. Right. And, you know, they need diversification. There's the saying that in crisis, correlation always goes to one. And even when we're not in a crisis market, we see correlation uh, cl getting closer and closer to one. So that along with tax advantage that y'all are bringing to the table, it's just ripe for the picking, I feel, for investors to look at these type of investments. Excellent. Uh, Ashley or Reed, I don't know if you would like to chime in. Do, do you believe there's a shift underway from traditionals to alts and why? If, if you guys want to chime in with a couple other insights. I would just say definitely the popularity of alts is increasing. We're seeing tremendous momentum there. I agree with everything Megan said. I would just add to that that there's a degree of specialization that's coming in uh, as well. So when you get to alts as a category, certainly there's momentum. But within that, there's all kinds of interesting specializations and uh, types of funds and types of asset classes uh, being set up, be it for tax advantage purposes for ESG, for impact, what have you. And that I find to be very, very interesting what's going on there. So, Jimmy, I think that it's illustrated by this whole significant movement inside of crypto relative to kind of the decentralization of things and that we're seeing that ripple effect through everything. So from Uber disrupting, it's all about disruption. And there's Uber disrupting the taxi cab industry, uh, tokenization disrupting kind of some of the traditional stock market plays, crypto coming in and disrupting a lot of the more traditional asset classes relative to being kind of considered stores of wealth. And I think that that same thing is happening here inside of the alt space is that you're getting groups that are really good at figuring out how to disrupt the traditional mechanisms by which wealth gets invested and distributed. And so as we see more and more of those players come to the table with along the lines of Megan, what Megan was saying, and then coupled in with the explosion of crypto through fintech and through other avenues. And I think that when we see the net effect of tokenization and as people get more comfortable with that, I think we're going to see this thing even advance further. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a good segue to my next question for everyone. And, and Reed, I'll, I'll turn to you this one first. And then Megan and Ashley, of course, feel free to chime in. But Reed, kind of thinking about the different product sponsors that you have on your platform, what alternative asset classes and product wrappers talking about REITs, DSTs, 
QOFs, et cetera. Which asset class and product wrappers have the most momentum heading into 2022? Well, it's interesting. I, I think real estate generally is the one that has the momentum we see. Within that, it's housing related is where we see the bulk of the uh, the activity. You know, we, we look across our QOFs that we administer. It's typically multifamily housing that we see. About 80% of that is market rate. 20% is affordable. The affordable component we see growing as, as part of most portfolios. So we do see momentum in that area. I think, you know, we talk a lot in the QOF space about operating businesses and what's going on in investments in that asset class. And while we've seen a lot of funds being formed for investments into operating businesses, the, we haven't seen the cash flow into those funds like we have into the real estate side. So what we're seeing emerge is these hybrid kind of investment opportunities where you might have a real estate play built around an operating business infrastructure. So maybe an energy kind of investment or you might have a retail kind of investment or an incubator kind of investment structure built with, which has a, a, a strong real estate, uh, real estate component to it. Yeah, Megan or Ashley, would you like to chime in? What, what, yeah, I think what the, other alternative asset class and product wrappers do you think have the most momentum heading into the new year? To Reed's point and kind of where we came off of that last question, you know, the challenge is that you have, and I think we're on the cusp of being able to crest this inflection point, but that we're not quite there yet is that traditional real estate investors are used to traditional real estate and they're used to those kind of returns that have that kind of risk. And then when you couple in, operating businesses, operating businesses are a whole different investor category, and they are not used to typically having tax advantage mechanisms to go in. So inside of the opportunity zone space, it's been hard to get access to the real estate capital because they're not comfortable with the risk of operating companies. But they also, they don't understand the potential reward as well, and that there could be significant upside of that. And so it's kind of this damned if you do, damned if you don't type deal, because if you do a fund with an operating business, but you throw real estate into it, it's like a sea anchor on the return. Whereas if you add operating businesses to the mix, it juices the return, but it also increases the risk. And so I think we're literally almost at the infliction point where people are realizing that there is value to having that operational risk associated with a real estate play because it juices the return. You're involved in the real estate. You're involved in it locally. So why not get the upside of the deal? So I think that what we'll see, this is me putting my prognosticator hat on, right, is I think we're going to see a tipping point with respect to those types of hybrid funds and or more funds that are focused on kind of traditional private equity roll-up strategies. I'm certainly seeing that in my space with conversations that I'm having on these strategy calls about a lot of people that are looking to do roll-ups and they're looking to consolidate operating businesses in order to get that alpha. Sure. And Megan, thinking about your members at IPA, what asset classes and product wrappers do you feel have the most momentum heading into the new year? Sure. You know, we've seen a lot of growth in the interval fund space, the unlisted closed-in fund space. I think there's a lot of benefits where, you know, you don't have to worry about blue sky. You're kind of in between two different acts, the, the 40 act world. You also, it's a little bit lower leveraged. So I, there's a lot of things that I think are attracting asset managers to come out with those investments. So interval funds has been 
something I've seen a lot of growth in. Something that's interesting, I, I think we'll see kind of a reemergence of the BDCs. Apollo recently just announced that they're going to be doing a BDC. And I think that gives that space maybe a little bit of a, a push, uh, kind of like the what Blackstone did with the Navrites. So um, it'll be, I think the, the thing to be mindful of is with BDCs, they're going to really need to work on the performance. They have a, a tough story to sell, but I think that the structure in and of itself is pretty powerful. 1031s, you know, every time I am talking to one of our 1031 member, it seems like they're constantly selling out of their 1031s before they can even hit the market with it. And I think it's just going to show you people are looking for some tax advantages out there. And then NAVREITs, you know, those are still continuing to, to kind of be the darling of the space. In May of this year, I wrote a little list here. They became effective with a NAVREIT. Uh, Prudential PGIM uh, became, a, or they registered in August of this year. Um, KKR, they were effective in May of this year with a REIT. And then Brookfield, they're now in the space and Aries. So, I mean, those are massive <laughs> names. It's kind of mind blowing to me that, that we're seeing these folks enter into the space and they're all coming in with these NAV REITs. So I, I think that's going to be a structure that we continue to see a lot of growth in. But, um, you know, I, I really do feel there's people looking for that income, but there's also people looking for the, the tax advantages. And I think what we'll also see maybe a little bit further on, and that kind of hits to what the other gentlemen were speaking of, is I think we're going to see a real democratization of uh, private equity. And, and I think that's going to be that next evolution. And that might be not the next year, but it, I think that's what we'll see in the next three to five years. Very good. Yeah, that's, those are some big institutional names that you dropped there, getting into NAV reads. That's interesting. And when you were talking about 1031s a moment earlier, I, those are mostly wrapped as Delaware Statutory Trust, DSTs, I believe. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, good. So, well, let me turn to Ashley now with this next question. I want to ask, what about crypto? I know you're a big crypto fan, Ashley, but how do you think the high net worth investors could incorporate crypto into their portfolios? And what trends do you see in crypto heading into the new year? You know, we don't have any crypto presenters on today's event. Uh, I'm hoping that we get some for our next event. We actually did, uh, Ashley, our, our, our other platform, Osworks Group, did host a crypto event yesterday. Tell us what you think about crypto. So I think that crypto, you know, and traditionally as viewed by kind of the more traditional asset managers and asset capital allocators has been viewed as the dark web still, right? And that there's something nefarious about it. Like, ooh, don't get involved in crypto because you might lose all your money. And I think that that is rapidly beginning to turn. And I think it's particularly rapidly beginning to turn as people see how much money is being made inside of the crypto run-ups. Now, I think that there's still a lot of concern about that relative to uh, kind of the wagering component to this, right? That there's, it's almost like day trading penny stocks in a lot of ways. It's a very speculative instrument still, right? In, in some forms it is. And then you've got other folks that view Bitcoin as the new digital gold, you know, senators included in that and a lot of significant institutions that are now allocating a portion of their cash reserves into Bitcoin, namely because if it's sitting in cash, it's going down 6% right now. And so there's a lot of folks that are incorporating it into their treasury management uh, strategies as a store of wealth. 
But I think that the real value inside of crypto, and I think that the real kind of smart money in the space is going to be looking for ways that they can utilize blockchain technology and they can utilize the existing folks that are utilizing blockchain technology as part of their business or as the disruptors in their spaces via some kind of blockchain technology. Now, most blockchain technologies also have a corresponding token to them. And so inside of that, to the extent that you're able to establish a use case, you're able to utilize the blockchain technology in the context of being that disruptor, then there's also that associated value run up with putting a certain amount of cash inside of that crypto asset. And I think that that's where we're going to see a lot of institutions really start to gain and to start to allocate resources and money into that program. And we're already seeing it with Bank of America. We're seeing it with uh, Cardano and Al Algorand teaming up with major institutions and with governments themselves in order to start laying the foundation for what is kind of going to be the next wave of crypto type stuff. And so I think that as that starts to happen, I think we will see a significantly more adoption of crypto inside of the significant players that are out there in their portfolio strategies. It's already starting to happen within the ultra high net worths and the family offices. They're already thinking that they're late to the game. And so they're rapidly coming into the space right now, which is one of the reasons why we've seen the run-ups that we have inside of the Bitcoin price and Cardano and Algorand and all the other ones that are out there. I'm curious about Megan's take on crypto. I, I, I want to get to Megan's take yeah. too, but let me, let me turn, let me, let me turn to Reed. Let me turn to Reed first. Reed, are any of your clients on your platform doing anything with crypto or do you have any thoughts on crypto? Yeah. When I think about it, I think about the operational elements of these kinds of things and what that means for fund managers and investors. We're passionate about helping these kinds of unique investments ultimately be successful. And a big part of that is you know, the, the compliance reporting, the tracking, the monitoring, all of that type of thing. And so it gets to be what Ashley was talking about in uh, Megan a little bit, that there's a, a fintech component to these things. You know, certainly a, a crypto fund is different than a 1031 DST or an EB5 or an OZ, right? So it's not one size fits all in terms of how you're going to set yourself up to operationalize these things. So for us, we're really focused on how do we configure and adapt our technology to be able to deal with the unique characteristics and requirements of those things. And that's going to be a big deal because without transparency at a, at a reporting level and without a good tool to administer these things, it just increases the risk exponentially on what's a already hard to understand asset class. Right. Okay, let's turn to Megan now. We had a question in from, from one of our attendees. Do IPA members consider crypto a valid alternative asset class? What do they think of it? Sure. We had a conference in New York two months ago, a month ago, two months ago, and it was focused on interval funds. However, during a lot of the panels at the end when we opened it up to Q&A, most of the questions or quite a few of the questions ended up being about crypto. And we had some great thought leaders and executives from large institutional firms on these panels, and they were able to devolve what they're doing with crypto in their portfolios. And they're working with crypto. This is kind of a little bit more antidotal, but I feel like the progression is this. When you're at a conference, maybe you'll have some people talking about it at cocktail reception. And then maybe the next year, you're going to have someone actually raise their hand and ask a question about it. And then the next year, you're going to see someone show up with a, a product that is 
focused on crypto. So I'm looking forward to seeing maybe a, a member come to market with, with something a little bit more substantial. But the larger institutions, they're working with them. Are they working with them in a, a sense of it's a huge strategy? Probably not. But from what it sounded like, there's a lot of them that are it's part of another component of their organization and, and they're keeping an eye on it and they're starting to invest in it and start to understand it. So it's real, it's out there. And I expect in a couple of years, it's going to be maybe old news. <laughs> sure. Sure. I kind of feel like crypto is maybe at the same stage that the internet was at in the mid to late nineties, like it's 1997 internet and people are just starting to get online and figure out, what yeah. it is and it's kind of ugly and it's, you know, maybe there's a crash coming in a couple of years that we can't see. I don't want to make any predictions like that. I'm just gazing into my crystal ball for a minute, but it almost <laughs> kind of has that same sense about it. I've heard well, someone mention that same sentiment. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, what their conclusion was, is there's going to be some really big winners and there's going to mm-hmm. be some really big losers. And mm-hmm. that's what we saw with the internet. And we'll probably see that again with crypto. So I think it's just making sure you're mindful of what you're actually investing in. Yep. Very good. Well, let's shift gears for a minute. And actually, Megan, I'm going to turn to you again to give us our first answer to this one, because I know that your organization, the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, really has an ear to the ground, what's going on in Capitol Hill, and you do great advocacy work there in Washington, D.C. What legislative and regulatory issues do you feel like investors should keep their mind on Mm -hmm. as they consider their portfolios heading into 2022? Sure. Some of the bigger issues that are on the horizon for us, and this is kind of broadly speaking, one is President Biden's uh, Build Back Better um, and the reconciliation bill. Um, They're going to continue to find ways to fund the government. And uh, with the Build Back Better, we want to make sure that programs like 1031 exchanges um, are are not going to be affected the IRA provision that popped up a few months ago, that was huge. We did a lot of advocacy. And maybe I could take a minute for those that aren't super familiar with what um, what recently happened. Yeah, um, please do. So with the Build Back Better framework, uh, they were considering the House Ways and Means Committee. They were considering um, really affecting the, um, the retiree. And... They wanted to prohibit certain alternative investments in IRAs. It it would have been a huge hit to our our business. So much of the alternative investments are put into IRAs. I would say probably when I've worked with asset managers, we would see about 60% of our business being held in IRAs. So upon learning this development, uh, the IPA, we ended up sending a letter. This was around uh, September, I think it was the 15th. Um, the announcement came out maybe the day before, and we hopped on it. We we sent a letter to the House Ways and Meetings Committee, the chairman, Neil, to let him know our concern and the ramifications that this could have. And we were partnered up with a couple of different coalition members in sending that letter. After about a month or two of continual work with senior staffers, um, working with the Senate Finance Committee, we were happy to see that at the end of October, they decided to pull that from the framework. It was a huge victory. It took a lot of grassroots efforts. We had over 5,000 letters that were written to congressmen and women. 
a lot of our coalition partners stepped up as well as organizations and firms that this would affect. So it was a huge teamwork, but that's one of the benefits with the IPA. We're able to bring people together to make these legislative and regulatory issues hopefully feel a little less overwhelming. That was a big thing that we've been working on. We have elections coming up in 2022. Uh, Redistricting is going to be big and we'll start to see kind of politicking start in April and May. So that's always going to add a little bit of spice to going up onto the Hill and, and lobbying and providing advocacy. We'll start to see more activity on the regulatory and state side next year. We have NASA that they're going to be coming out with a model state judiciary rule. And we are working very hard to make sure that this does not catch on and that we'll have actually some some data to go out and combat what they're trying to to do with the judiciary rule. And we're also going to be working with our coalition partners to counter kind of this biased approach that they're, they're looking at. We have the DOL rule. That's going to be something that I don't think ever goes away, but um, it's sure not industry friendly right now. And, and so we'll be working heavily on advocating for a, a more friendly rule ESG is really big and any sort of tax incentives that can go along with ESGs, we see that being something that policy will be uh, written around. And I'll take a breath there. I mean, there's a lot, you know, like I said, this is a highly regulated industry and I would like to say that it would change, but I don't think that's going to be the case. No, it absolutely is a highly regulated industry. And, and, and thank you and uh, for all the advocacy work that, that you and your organization at IPA does on behalf of the alternatives industry. I, I know we all appreciate it. Uh, Reed or Ashley, I don't know if you had any thoughts. Uh, Megan did a great job summarizing, I think. But if, if you want to chime in briefly on any other legislative or regulatory issues uh, in regards to alts. Just real quick, I think that uh, there was a question asked about the... Uh, government spending in these plans. And from what I understand, yeah, there's going to be quite a few uh, buckets of capital uh, that are intended for investment in things that qualify as alternatives. And there's going to be some great opportunities in there. I think as part of that, there's obviously a lot of infrastructure work going on that creates opportunities. Regulatory wise, I think ESG, we're going to see that sort of more rigor around ESG reporting coming down the pipe. And so 